Father in heaven, we're so grateful to thee that we can be in the house in this morning, thankful that we can be here and to rejoice with thee in a beautiful morning, that we can fellowship in thy house, to be taught of thy word, and to uh, give thee thanks for the many blessings that we have been showered upon, that have been showered upon us in this in this past week. Lord, we're thankful for them. Thankful, Lord, that we can hear of progress on on Ron's uh, prognosis and treatments. Lord, we pray that that would continue. Pray that the what seem like baby steps, but are truly monumental at times. Lord, pray that that would continue. Pray that you'd be with Claire and Olivia. That you'd be with. Um, Aunt Hannah and JP and Laura and Uncle Jim, Lord, pray for the whole family as they would uh, want to minister to him and, and have to rely on the hands of able-bodied doctors. Lord, we pray for the doctors and the nurses that care so deeply and uh, completely for their patients. And in this case, Lord, we're thankful for all of the effort that is made and pray, Lord, that you'd continue to rise up those that would be able to perhaps even have particular insight to, to bring about a good report. And pray for Aunt Erica. And for Bella, Lord, uh, understanding that an expected passing is coming soon, pray that you'd be with her, pray that you'd be with the girls, um, even some far away, and and Lord, having to process that whole experience, and pray that you'd give them comfort and and peace from above. Lord, we're thankful for good news that we've heard on Brother Sasha's report uh, up in Canada, pray that that would continue, pray that you'd be with his family as well, and, and minister to encourage them. And Lord, we're mindful of other brothers that we've heard of passings in this week and, and families that are mourning and pray for the, the Kryzen family. And Lord, we're there's sure that there are others that we're forgetting about. And so we lift all of them up to Thee. Lord, again, we're grateful that we can be here in Thy house in this day. Thankful for the moving of Thy Spirit that we've already seen and felt. And pray as we would look into Your Word now that You'd give us insight from above where it's needful for us. Pray that You'd be with the Marcys also who can't be with us. Pray that as we would be streaming uh, this down south, Lord, that you'd be with our loved ones in Florida as well and impart a particular blessing to them. And so as we open your word, Lord, we'll give you thanks for it in advance and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. It's a passage that we were in a couple weeks ago and felt led to kind of continue in some of the things that we were discussing the last time. Um, This was kind of a continuation of the Bible class from a few weeks ago as well. Um, The thoughts that I had as I was looking at this, um, I guess maybe if centered on on one topic or one, one theme, was that of perspective? And what is our spiritual perspective? What, what did, um, how does life influence us? How does, how does the world in which we live and the experiences that we make in this world influence our spiritual perspective at times? And so we have this passage, and, and I'm going to, rather than reading it all the way through, because it's fairly long, my, my goal is to actually read from where we stopped last time, from verse 14 in Mark 6 to the end of the chapter. And rather than reading it all right out of the gate, I'd like to start and stop. So you can follow along with me if you'd like, or you can just, just listen as we go. And, and I may, this is, the, this is the one hazard of having you all here in this room right, as opposed to the sanctuary. I'm much more comfortable asking a question in this setting, so I may do that. Oh, I may do that this morning and just ask you to bear with me. Um, 
So we'll start with verse 14. We'll see, let's see how far we go. Oh, actually, should probably preface. The last time we were in this passage, we had Jesus giving direction to his disciples to go out to preach the gospel and then giving them the, the instruction as to how they should interact with folks. If they're received well, go there, minister to them, stay with them, preach, teach. But if you're not received well, shake the dust off of your feet. Don't linger where you're not going to be, um, be welcomed. And so it says in verse 12, And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. And continuing, verse, continuing in verse 14, And King Herod heard of them, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was raised from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Others said this is Elias, and others said this is a prophet, or as one of the prophets. And when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John, whom I beheaded. He is raised from the dead. I just want to stop for one quick second. I had a, a text exchange with some of you and even some from far away this week. There's a context um, question that I just want to, I'm not going to put to bed that I know exactly how it fits in, but just as to how we're going to talk about it today. If you read this passage, what we're going to get next is the account of John the Baptist's beheading, of Herod beheading John. But the way that it reads here is as if um, Herod is almost recalling this. Herod says, well, this, this has to be, Je Jesus must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then he talks about how John the Baptist died. From the context, it, it seems like it's a flashback thing. But if you read this in Matthew, same, same account, it reads as a continuation. And so for just the sake of what we're reading today, I just ask you to go with me on the, on the premise that this is recalling an in, um, a chron in, in chronological order account of John passing away. So just it, it's a little confusing, but I just want to explain that, that we're going to look at this as if it was in uh, chronological order. For John had said unto Herod, excuse me, for Herod himself sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but he could not, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him, and when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper of the Lord's, high captains and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of, excuse me, and when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him, the king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatever thou wilt, and I'll give it to thee. And she swear at her, excuse me, and he swear at her, whosoever shall ask of me, I will give, excuse me, whatsoever I shall ask. I'm like, Opa, now I gotta find the light. Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it to thee unto half of my kingdom. And she went forth and asked, said unto her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king, and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in the charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake, and for the sake 
of which, for the sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head to the dam, to the, in the charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. I'll stop just real quickly with verse 28. This part of the chapter doesn't, I, I want to talk about it quickly. It doesn't fall in line necessarily with my thoughts on this spiritual perspective piece. But just so that we have it clear as to what happened here. John the Baptist had made his feelings and the truth known to Herod that this relationship that Herod had in marrying his brother's wife was unacceptable, was evil, was wrong. And the woman, Herodias, clearly didn't like that. She, she took great offense at being called out. And so when her daughter, now imagine this, her daughter, Herod's niece, comes in to dance for Herod and his buddies that are having a, you know, a bros weekend or a, uh, a guy's night. Not only is this gross just on the surface, morally and ethically, but even historically, this would have been so out of character. This was, this was not a place for a royal person to be, let alone um, the daughter or stepdaughter, whatever it is, of the king. And so Herod, we know it says that Herod respected what John had said. Herod was clearly... Um, convicted by the condemnation that he'd received from John, but also it says that he received gladly the other words that John had preached. So he, he says to this, this young lady and makes this proclamation, um, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, I'll give you whatever you want. And I, I have to think to myself, what, what did this girl think was going to be the answer? She, she has no idea what to answer back, so she does what most young ladies would do. They go, I'm going to ask my mom. See what my mom would think I should ask for. Imagine the reaction of the young girl when her mother tells her to ask for the head, excuse me, ask for on a charger, and you almost imagine that there's like this, this hanging silence, the head of John the Baptist. I can have up to half the kingdom, and mom, mom's vendetta against this guy is so bad that she wants his head on a platter. It's... And the reaction of Herod, I think, is even more poignant. Herod, it says, is, is so grieved, doesn't know what to do, but because of the witness, because he had asked this question, he'd made this proclamation and asked this of her, asked her to give him her request in front of all of his friends, he knew there was no backing down. He didn't have the backbone to retract, say, that was a stupid comment. I should have never said that. No, I'm not going to do this had no intestinal fortitude to be able to stand up to this foolish proclamation he'd made. It makes me think of, you know, he didn't even say it was according to the law of the Medes and Persians, but doesn't this harken back to, to Daniel and Darius makes this statement? I don't know, just made me, made me struck by that. But, just to continue... I lost my place. Verse 29, And when his disciples heard it, they came in and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. And he, Jesus, said unto them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, 
and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Stopping at the end of verse 31. The disciples are the ones, maybe not just the 12, maybe there was some more as well, but the disciples are the ones that go and bury John. Don't know exactly which ones of it they were, but the disciples are the ones that go and bury John. These are the guys that just previously had been instructed by Christ to go out, to preach the gospel, to, to share the good news. And somewhere in the next window, we see John is killed, and they have the duty of being the ones to go and bury him. I mean, talk about a roller coaster. And Christ recognizes this, I think. Christ recognized that they needed some, some peace and quiet. And he says to them, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a little while. And it says that they, they had been coming and going, basically running around so much that they didn't even have time to stop and eat. They were so busy that they had no chance to take care of themselves and to, to, to nourish themselves or to rest. And so they departed into a desert place by ship privately. It says and, but it almost feels like it should say, but the people saw them departing, and many knew them, and ran afoot thither out of all the cities, and underwent them, and came together unto them. You just have to imagine this, this scenario and what this looks like. I mean, we've seen the Vanderland series. This is the Sea of Galilee, and we know the Sea of Galilee has mountains that rise up on either side, and as they go out to cross the lake, the people know who's out on the lake. I mean, you can see, this is a, I think we talked about this before, it's, it's about a 13-mile lake. It's pretty much circular, at least it lays out. But just imagine, tip to tip, it's about 13 miles. So not as big as Oneida, not as long as Skinny Atlas. About, I'm thinking if Skinny Atlas was a little wider, that's what, we're kind of, what I'm kind of feeling. And again, we've seen it on the Vanderland series, but imagine that the people are up in the hills around the lake and Jesus just tells his, his disciples, we've got to get away. Let's, let's get away and go rest in a desert place, which just means that they're going to go off to another part of the shore. But the people are running along the shoreline trying to figure out where they're going to dock. Where are they going to be? How, how are we going to get to them the next, the next spot? And if you're the disciples, you're tired. You've just had this experience of burying John. I've been worn out, haven't had time to even stop to eat. And there's these people that are chasing you on the shoreline. In the previous chapter, we know the scenario where Jesus was crossing back and forth across the lake. He goes to Decapolis, then he comes back, and the people are there waiting for him, and the press of the lady that had the issue of blood. I mean, there are a mass, massive horde of people everywhere this man goes. I like people. I'm a people person. I like being in big groups. I would be exhausted by this. And I can't imagine that all of the disciples had that same personality where they liked being in some big uh, social event. And I think we'll get a sense of that as we keep reading. And Jesus, when he came to the other side, excuse me, came out, saw much people, and was moved with compassion toward them because there were, they were as sheep not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Just imagine, I mean, I think Jesus is talking about, the description is sheep without a shepherd and that they had no one to teach them. But there's also this visual of these people chasing along the side of the, the shore looking for the shepherd, looking for somebody to teach them. 
And so Jesus takes the time. He engages them. He teaches them. And this is a story we know very well. And when the day was now far spent, his disciples came unto him and said, This is a desert place, and now the time is far past. Send them away, that they may go into a country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. The disciples have turned into good trustees. This is where I, I was. They're looking at this situation. They're checking their own pockets. They're checking their own Uh, storehouses. They're in a desert place, and all these people have shown up, and Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is teaching, and Jesus is teaching, and the day is far spent. It's getting dark outside. Dusk is showing up, right? We're along the the water, probably up in the mountain, desert mountain, I guess, somehow. The sun is setting, and the disciples are going, it's time. Please send them away. Send them away. Send them anywhere that they can go find some meat. The day is far spent. Let them go into the surrounding countryside and find something to eat. For they have nothing. And he answered and said unto them, Give them to eat. I, I love how the recorded words of Jesus are often such short, such short and concise statements. The di- disciples just said, go out. We need to, they need to provide for themselves. Send them out. The resources are there. They can need to take care of it. And Jesus says, give them to eat. Dead silence. And they say unto him, and again, I wonder which one of these it was that was saying this, shall we buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them to eat? 200 penny worth of bread is like effectively 35 bucks. And he said unto them, How many loaves have ye? And go see. And when they knew, they say, Five and two fishes. And again, we know this wasn't even theirs. This was the little boy's lunch. 35 bucks and a little boy's lunch, have them sit down. And he commanded them to all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in the ranks by hundreds and by fifties. I need you to think about, because that, that I had not thought of before, hadn't really looked into that, what this looks like. This sitting down by companies in hundreds and fifties was to organize them. This was to get them to sit into rows. This was, this was not like a refugee situation where you see UNICEF or whoever it is pulls up with a truck full of bread and they just start whipping bread out like... I can think of another bad analogy, but like Trump throwing the uh, paper towels when he went to Puerto Rico, just you and you get one, or, or just throwing stuff out there willy nilly and watching, like you're throwing birdseed out in Central Park and watching the pigeons just come all collected. Before any miracle had happened, Jesus was setting them down in an organized manner so that it wasn't chaos, so that it wasn't some big free for all. He said, you sit here, and you sit here, and you sit here. Get lined up. Everybody get organized. I can imagine it almost had something to do with, well, we know we're going to have to walk in between the rows. We know we're going to have to hand this stuff off, get it all done in an orderly fashion, because, hey, there's 5,000 men plus women and children here. This is going to take a minute. He organizes them, gets them all set down, and when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish in his hands, I'm not, it doesn't say that, but we know he took them, and looked up to heaven, and blessed and break the loaves, 
and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two, the two fishes divided he among them all. And they did eat and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets full of fragments of the fishes. And they did eat of the loaves that were about five thousand men. Someday we'll get to find out how that happened. How long was the prayer? They all closed their eyes, and when they opened it again, all the fishes and the loaves were there. Or did he just keep breaking it and it never got smaller? And how do you break a fish? Right? As a kid, I always, that was one thing, the literal part of this was a little weird to me. How do you break a fish? Well, look it up. This was probably salted fish that was more like breaking off pieces of jerky. Um, but even then, how does that happen? And the logic of that, the logistics of that is something that still just blows me away. But yet, all of these folks were, were, were fed and were filled. And we still have these disciples here, riding high on the mountain to start preaching the gospel, go through this gut-wrenching experience of burying John the Baptist, are exhausted, supposed to go off to a place to rest and to have their, their peace and quiet, and now they're thrown back into this scenario with the feeding of the 5,000. Excited, I'm sure, overwhelmed, probably, and now blown away by, by the result of it. But then it says, and when he, had, excuse me, and straightway, now mind you, I'm assuming the people are still finishing up, right? The day is far spent, the people are still there, and straightway he, Jesus, constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. Just imagine. The disciple, he knows the disciples have been far spent. He knows they're overwhelmed. He knows they've been exhausted. And they just went through this other experience. He knows their temper, not temper, their nerves are probably short because of the interaction that they had right at the beginning. Throwing the whole, we got 35 bucks. How are we going to feed these people? Jesus just showed them how he was going to feed these people. And now he said, go away. Go on the other side. You still deserve this, vaca- this vacation, this rest. You deserve this peace and quiet. You deserve this recharging uh, experience. So go away. Go, the, the 12 of you, how many of them there were at this point, go to the other side while I dismiss the people. While he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into the mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary to them, and it was about the fourth watch of the night. I was going to stop right in the middle of this verse. This is the one that I wish we had a better visual to understand what this looked like. Jesus has sent them away. These are fishermen among them. They're in the boat. They're rowing. We don't know when they started, but it's now about 3 o'clock in the morning. And they are toiling, trying to row across this 13-mile lake. And Jesus has gone to do his own recharging, to go into the mountain to pray. And he's up and he sees down. He looks down and he can see them rowing. We were skiing. We've done a lot of skiing lately at, at Song. And I think the, one of the main reasons that I like going to Song as opposed to going to Lab is the view. I mean, that's a terrible reason to go to one place versus the other. It has nothing to do with the skiing. But I love looking out at the top of Song Mountain and seeing Otisco. 
I mean, I'm coming to find my favorite thing to do in the winter gets to look over my favorite place to be the rest of the year. And I just imagine Jesus standing up there. The view there is tough, though. You couldn't see. I mean, I can see the causeway. And I can see, actually, probably could see Sam's house from there. But if he was trying to row across the lake, I probably wouldn't be able to make that out. So the distance is still too far. It's still just a little too far to, to understand, you know, exactly who, who is that that's going across. And it's dark, and, and how are you actually able to, to see that? But we've all had little vistas that we've seen a lake from a distance. Um, you get up into the Adirondacks, and looking down at, if you're at Macaulay Mountain, you can look down and see the lakes off in the distance there. And I just imagine somebody looking down and see, Christ seeing them toiling as they're trying to work their way across the lake. And it's the middle of the night. And the, what emotion, what that must have brought about in him. And says, he saw them toiling, and he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and he would, as if he would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it to be a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled, and immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. And when they passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew nigh to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him, straightway they, meaning the people around, knew him and ran throughout the whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick and they were healed, excuse me, those that were sick and when they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid their sick in the streets and besought him that he might touch it, if it were, but the border of his garment, as many as it had touched were healed. What's missing from this story? What's missing from this account? This is, the, uh, not, this is not rhetorical. Somebody tell me, what is missing from this story that we know also happened in this story? Remember what piece is missing? This is nope. No, no, you're right. Yeah, same, same area. The boat piece, I guess, is what I'm talking about, Jeff. What happened in the boat? Peter. There was. There was. The parallel in this one, there's something interesting about this account that I didn't know before. There's, there is a general, I'm not saying that this is for certain, but there's a general thought that Peter assisted Mark in writing his gospel, just in the way that things are, are contextually laid out. And what's so interesting is if you read, even if you read Mark like cover to cover, you get this sense, like some abruptness, right? This, and it, like a, a Peter kind of tone to it, right? The cutting off Malchus's ear kind of a thing. There's a lot of the accounts are very abrupt and, and sudden. But what's interesting is this piece of Peter walking on the water is missing. And not only is that piece missing, but I want to read you. And again, this will, I promise there will be a reason to this. It's not just giving you facts for fun. In Matthew 14, we have the account of Peter walking on the water. 
And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand to pull Peter up and says, O thou of little faith, therefore, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when he came into the ship, the wind ceased. And they that were with him in the ship came and worshipped him and said, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. We did a study years ago as a youth group. Um, if you want to walk on the water, you've got to get out of the boat. And I remember the crux of this was, we're going to have our moments of doubt. We're going to have our moments of sinking. But when the Lord reaches out his hand to us and puts us in the boat, we will always, we should seek always to have that recognition of a truth, thou art the Son of God. But when you read it in Mark, he went up unto the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered, for they considered not the loaves, considered not the miracle of the loaves, and their heart was hardened. I'm going to surmise something. And you can talk to me afterwards if, if you think I'm off base. But what, what struck me was when I'm having moments of weariness, frustration, put whatever other description you want on it. What is my perspective of events and circumstances happening around me? How, where am I, how, how am I viewing those things? If this is indeed a passage that's influenced by Peter. When Peter is recalling this thing and giving this back to Mark, Peter had just sunk in the water. And Jesus pulled him up and said, Wherefore, where's your faith? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And if I'm Peter, I'm going back in my mind and I'm thinking, you know what? I, didn't, I, I wasn't considering the miracle that I just saw. I wasn't considering the fishes and the loaves. And my heart must have been hardened. There was something I missed. I, somehow I missed what was happening around me. But you know what? Matthew had a different perspective. Matthew was looking at it from the side going, when he pulled us into the boat, when he pulled Peter in and we recognized what happened, when our eyes were, were revealed, when our, when, when our eyes were opened and our hearts were made to understand, we were able to say, surely this is the Son of God. It... I found a quote as I was looking around at this. The apostolic crew team rode and rode and rode, and it was no fault of theirs that they made no progress, for the wind was contrary unto them. The Christian man and woman may not make little excuse me, the Christian man or woman may make little or no headway at times, and yet it may be no fault of his, for the wind is contrary. Our good Lord will take the will for the deed and reckon our purpose not by our apparent advance, but by the hearty intent with which we tug at the oars. That's Charles Spurgeon. What struck me is how we view things in the moment and understanding how God wants us to view our walk at all times and our level of commitment. It's not a function. You know, certainly these guys needed rest. They needed strength. They needed encouragement. And it wasn't, you know, it's, it would be easy to say, some of my notes when I, start, when I started looking into this, some of my notes said, how come Jesus, Jesus was searching to give them some rest time, and if Jesus controls the wind and the waves, why did he send them out to row across the lake? He wanted them to have some rest, and so he said, hey, what's a better way to rest than row in the middle of a storm? 
what I should have been seeing was he knew there was going to be a storm, and it wasn't his, he didn't create the storm. Sure, he, he knew it was going to happen. This is a fallen world. The, what does it say? The rain falls on the just and the unjust, and I know I've preached about that before, that we need to look at the rain as a blessing to bring growth. But in this case, the rain and the wind was falling on good disciples, and there was probably other people who had done evil and were looking at that as the payment for their bad actions that day. But what I didn't see in the first moments as I was looking at this is Jesus knew they were going to be there, so he put himself up on the mountain to watch. So that when they had reached the end of their strength, that he could go walking on the water. And he didn't go walking on the water just to rescue them, just to yank them out. Certainly that's why he was there. But he made sure that it was them that saw him first. He, he made, it says, that he went as if he was going to pass by. Does anybody in this room think Jesus was actually going to pass by? That he wasn't going to be there in the end? That there was going to be any chance that they were going to reach a point of exhaustion and sink that little ship in the Sea of Galilee? But he needed, he knew for their benefit, they needed to be the ones to reach out to see him, to call out to him and ask for help. And Peter may not have wanted it recorded in this gospel. Again, I might be out on a limb with this one. I'm not positive. But Peter may not have liked the story of him sinking in the water. And he may have looked at it as if it was a matter of him not acknowledging the miracle that had just happened and not being, you know, that the hearts were hardened. But those in the boat, when God pulled, when God, when Christ got in the boat with them, had the confidence and the faith to be able to embrace it and say, surely this is the Son of God. That their reliance was there, that their faith was there. And so what it says to me is, we need to be, care- <laughs> we need to be careful at times as to how we are judging situations. How we are looking at what is happening. Things that come about in not in my life, but in, in many of yours and others' lives, we look at it and we say, why on earth is this being allowed to happen? Why is it happening this way again? Why is God letting that happen? And the reality is, it's not a function of God letting these things happen. These things happen. Bad things happen. But where is he? Where is Christ at that moment? Where is the mountaintop around me that he's standing up in, looking down, waiting for the moment when he knows he's needed the most, that he'll be there for, to come to our rescue. Didn't intend, didn't intend for this to, to, to come out this way, but as I was preparing some thoughts this week, I, there's a song that continues to show up um, in my feed called Rescuer. And I've had, and I even I bought the, the music for it, um, piano music, and was trying to play it this week and finding again that I need a lot more practice playing the piano. But the, to- the song continues to talk about in, in all different situations where Christ came to our rescue. In history of, all, in, in biblical times, in historic times, and even in times today that he continues to come to our rescue. And then one, another, another song came on right after that that had a, a line, it's a little crass, um, but those of you that know secular music in some, set, in some sense, there's a, a song that uses the, the phrase, running with the devil. It says, in this running with the devil world, I'm going to walk with you. 
in a world that wants to run away and do whatever and, and run as far from God and, and get away from anything that has to do with a matter of faith, am I making that choice to walk with Christ? To, to, seek, to seek His direction and walking in my life? I know that's, that, that sounds, sounds crazy. Not crazy. It sounds disconnected. We often think, we often expect that walking with Christ is going to be um, walking through a busy place with our kids. Right? Hold this hand. Hold, hold my hand. When it's busy, I won't interrupt him now. But we have one kid that will hold your hand right away. No problem. It almost instinctively reaches out because knows that it's, things can be scary around. And there's the other one that is always just whipping. I don't want to hold your hand. I can do this. Tell them to stand there, they go the other place. Wants to always do it on their own. And as a parent, I always want to have, I want to have the hand close. And as a, as a child of God, I would like to have God's hand close. I want him that close that I can feel it. But what I was n- noticing and needing to learn to appreciate in this passage is that sometimes God's watching over me, God's protection over us, God's um, grace over us is standing on a mountain and looking back down. Is that mine? Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Usually it's my watch talking back to us. If you have a chance, look, look for pictures. I mean, even just do a Google search. I, okay, I'm not going to... This is a shameless plug. Josh and Renee, uh, when they went on their, and Andrew too, when they went on their RV trip, they took some videos. And they have, there's a couple shots that you guys have in Glacier National Park where you're, when you did your hike, looking down over the lake. Or one of the lakes, I don't know which lake it was. And as I was thinking about this, this that, when I thought of the image of Christ looking down over the lake, sure, Otisco came up, but I've watched these quite a bit lately. That view is one that, that popped into my mind. If you get a chance, watch, watch the video. And that's what I think sometimes in our lives we have to appreciate, is that God may not, it may not feel like he's squeezing our hand telling us not to cross the street, but that he's watching from a distance because we're his children and he's called us to go out. It's not that he's not right there. It's not that he couldn't be walking, that he won't be walking next to us on the water instantly. But then when things seem to be walking in a way that we don't understand, that we are rowing and we can't figure it out, that it's not a function of us not rowing hard enough, that the progress doesn't look like what, it's, what we should be expecting, it's that he's watching from a distance. To, he's watching from our proverbial distance, yet him being right there to take our hand and to, to give us the encouragement where we need it, to show us that it wasn't our job to row all the way across the lake, it was our job to show the measure of faith and conviction to keep rowing, to keep praying, so that we can prove, in some cases, just to the world around us, what faith in Christ looks like. It's not measured in accomplishment. It's not measured in numbers in the benches. It's not measured with 35 bucks in your pocket so that you can feed 5,000. It's measured in when God said, or when Christ said, organize the people, set them down, Put them in rows so that I can feed them 
efficiently and effectively, that we don't grumble and complain, we don't say, how on earth is this going to happen? We spring to action, we do what he said, and we close our eyes, wait for the prayer, and get ready to hand out the fish and the bread. I pray that when we look at the weeks to come and the months to come and whatever it is for even maybe this afternoon, that our lives, that my life can be motivated a little bit more to that effect. To be ready to, to jump out and to act where he's going to direct us and not to, not to question even as they did, um, why can't we get away from these people? Why can't I get some rest? Why can't this be a little bit easier? It wasn't any easier for him. He had compassion and said, they need a shepherd. He had compassion and said, they need some food. He had compassion on his disciples and said, they need a rest. Let me go calm the sea. May the Lord bless these few words.